And Megla has incredible instinct. So she, in the dark, knew that I was teary. And she turned to me and she said, I know you're thinking about Dima. You must not be sad about Dima, Ma, because Dima is your imaginary friend. And she follows you everywhere because that's what imaginary friends do. That's just so wise. And it's true. She is my imaginary friend. <laughs> and she is going to follow me everywhere. And I think that's the quote that I want to live by for the rest of my life. As moms, we often wonder, am I doing enough for my kids? I'm here to tell you, you are super mama. That's because we have an undeniable superpower, our intuition, and it never steers us wrong. I call it our mom sense. Hi, I'm Kanika Chadda Gupta, and I'm the host of That's Total Mom Sense. I'm a journalist, entrepreneur, wife, and mom of three, twins plus one. Now, if I had a dollar every time I heard, gee, you have your hands full. On my podcast, I interview influential moms from various industries and cover topics that all first-time parents grapple with, from getting your baby to sleep to screen time allowance, your new normal in your marriage, and how to dedicate time to yourself. Learn and laugh along with that total mom sense. Hello, everyone. Today's episode delves deep into motherhood, how it's intergenerational and we are birthed from the mothers before us. Their love, their thoughts, their dreams live on in us. And I'm so thrilled to have Nandana Dev Sen on That's Total Mom Sense today. Nandana Dev Sen is an award-winning actor, writer, and child rights activist, daughter of the world-renowned economist and philosopher Amartya Sen, and the famous Indian poet, author, and academic Nabanita Dev Sen. Nandana was destined to pursue a career in the arts. After graduating Phi Beta Kappa from Harvard University, where she won the John Harvard Scholarship and Elizabeth Agassiz Prize each year, and studying filmmaking at the USC School of Cinema Television, she worked as a book editor, a screenwriter, a script doctor, a poetry translator, a short filmmaker, and just for fun, as Princess Jasmine at Disneyland. Nandana grew up in India, England, and America, and has acted in over 20 feature films from all three continents and in multiple languages. She is the ambassador for child protection for Save the Children India. Nandana has worked closely with children and grown-ups at UNICEF, RAHI, India's first organization for survivors of child sexual abuse, UPNEAP, which ends sex trafficking by providing education and preventing intergenerational prostitution, and Operation Smile. In 2019, Nandana was awarded the Last Girl Champion Award for her campaign against human trafficking and child abuse. Nandana's first book, Kangaroo Kisses, was selected by over 320 UK nurseries as a book of excellence, and her interactive workshops have been loved by more than 30,000 young people. Her latest book, Acrobat, is a collection of her mother's poems translated from Bengali by Nandana and is published by Archipelago Books. Nandana lives with her husband, John Mackinson, and daughter, Megla. Nandana, welcome to the show. Thank you for that incredibly warm, generous, and well-researched introduction. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You have quite the bio, and I didn't want to leave anything out. So I want to start by how we met. It was the Mother's Day issue in Seema magazine, and both of us were featured. And so a big thanks to Seema Kumar and Anjali Maniam for connecting us. Mm -hmm. um, and incidentally, yes, and incidentally, I've worked with your sister Indrani Sen, um, who is a journalist. So, you know, I just, I think it's wonderful when the universe collides and reconnects you to those who you were always meant to be. I agree. Such serendipity. Yes. So the theme of today's show is ma, mother, the intergenerational bonds and the fact that we're raised with a mother's love and we raise our daughters to go on to do the same. So I would love to start with your ancestry. Your grandmother, Radrani, was married at age 12 and widowed at 13 and was completely self-educated. She sounds so remarkable. My grandmother took responsibility for each and every one of 
the choices that she made and because in her early in the early part of her life she wasn't able to write she was married at 12 that wasn't her choice but mm. she was actually married to a lovely man who was going to who she was developing a friendship with hadn't come to know him yet as a husband when he died that he she came from a fairly traditional family she was one of 13 kids and none of the girl children were educated even though she was it, she, it was an aristocratic family her dad was the magistrate of Kuchbihar and you know they they were very wealthy but there was no tradition her mother was not literate and the daughters were not raised with education so she developed a really wonderful relationship of love with her mother-in-law even though her husband was dead and she was her mother-in-law gave her a lot of support um, in a way that actually her own mother hadn't when my grandmother finally decided to marry again she fell in love with the poet uh, narendra dev she decided that she would give herself away you know when we do sampradan yes. which is that moment in in a wedding when the bride is given away i guess that happens in every culture yeah um, but she said i I'm going to give myself away. No one else has the right or the responsibility to give me away. And that is the way she lived her life. I think that's what kind of encapsulates the choices that she made and the way in which she set a trend for us as young girls in the family, but also for a generation of young women. She was an early feminist. Both she and your mother were personally named by Rabindranath Tagoreji. Uh, so tell us the story behind their very significant names. Actually, my father was named by Tagore as well. Oh, wow. <laughs> unconnected. Um, but my grandmother on my father's side, both my grandmothers were actually very close to Tagore, but in very different ways. My mother's mother, Radharani, was close to her as a him as a poet. And he encouraged her and was a mentor and an, and an admirer of her work. My other grandmother, my father's mother, was a dancer. She was an ashram kanya. She grew up with Tagore. And her father, Kiti Mohanshan, was a very well-known scholar who created Bishabharati with, with Tagore. And my grandmother on my father's side was a dancer who developed the modern dance that, that the Rabindrik style of dancing, the dance we see with Tagore songs, was a dance form that was developed in part by my grandmother. So she was very close to Tagore uh, because of the friendship that her father had with Tagore. So my when she was uh, when she had my father, Tagore took it upon himself to to name him and gave him a name that no one else had at that time, Amartya. He's the first Amartya. So when my grandmother remarried, Tagore sent her this beautiful letter in which he said, I'm giving you a new name because you have reinvented yourself today. You have created a new identity. So your name is going to be Nobonita. And my grandmother, being as um, spirited as she always was, wrote a beautiful and very lovely, warm, polite letter back saying, I love the name. It's gorgeous. But hey, I already have a name. I kind of like my name. Okay. So I'm not going to change my name, but I'm grateful to have this name. And if I ever have a daughter, I will call her Nobonita. So that's how my grandmother, she she passed on the legacy of her name to my mother. And that's that's the way both my parents actually got their names from Tagore. That is beautiful. You are very much your father, Amartya Sen's daughter as well. What are some of the characteristics that you and your father share? I've been told that I have inherited his sense of humor. Actually, my mother had a great sense of humor as well, but they're very different. My father is very, it's a very wry sense of humor. And my mother's is a very kind of open-hearted, laugh out loud kind of sense of humor. What I hope I have inherited from both of them is kind of directness and a confidence in being able to speak my mind. Mm. And they do it in very, again, both of them did that all their lives as writers, as public personas, and as people, intellectuals who are deeply committed to social justice, which both have always been. 
but they did it in slightly different ways. I think again, my father is a, a, a lot more tactful in in the way he voices his opinion, but he is absolutely uncompromising about the honesty with which he he speaks his mind. And I think that was something that I hope inherited from both of them. But one thing that I think my mother did not have, which I hope I have a bit more of, and my my dad has a lot of, is patience. My mother was very, very patient with people, extremely mm-hmm. patient with people, but she was not patient with situations. She want, When she wanted change, she wanted things to change immediately. And she was sort of, there was a childlike enthusiasm and impatience in her, which I really loved. Like if she was excited <laughs> about doing something, she wanted it to happen right now. She didn't <laughs> have to wait for it to happen. My dad, on the other hand, is infinitely patient. And I uh, sometimes I'm told that I have that. Uh, I, I don't know that I feel that I have <laughs> inherited that, but I have heard that from various friends and family members. So so tell us a little bit about your childhood, you know, um, growing up in, in Calcutta. Are there any experiences that still feel very vivid in your mind? It was an intensely culturally and politically alive atmosphere where a lot of the poetry that was being written, the plays that were being produced, the songs that were being performed were infused by the spirit of revolution. And that was very infectious. That was a fantastic way of growing up. It's a very different Kolkata now from what it was then. I mean, I'm sure we all feel nostalgic about our childhood, but, you know, we were taken by my mother. I used to complain about it at that time, but she would take us to poetry festivals and book fairs. Kobisham Milan, as we used to call them in Kolkata, that was a huge culture of Kobisham Milan in Bengal. She would take us with her to these amazing literary events rather than taking us to the circus or, you know, the amusement <laughs> park. I wasn't crazy about that as a child, but now I realize how much of my love of poetry and books has to do with the way she raised us. And what was your Dhaknam? I feel like, you know, all Bengalis have one. And so I'm just curious. (laughs) My Dhaknam is Tumpa. My dad called me Tumble Tumble, which was the name that inspired the title of one of my books, Talky Tumble of Jumble Farm. Yes. A book that I dedicated to him as well, because it's a book about a very chatty little girl. And it's about word problems. It's basically a book of stories that are also word puzzles that you need to solve. And my dad developed in us a love for solving puzzles and problems. And that was something that we loved doing together. I loved doing together with him as a child. So his name for me was Tumble Tumble. Mother and grandmother called me Tumpushi or Tumpush. Um, Did you feel you and your sister Antara were pressured to succeed because you kind of grew up in a household where everyone knew who your parents were and who you were. One of the reasons why I left Kolkata, although I loved my childhood in Kolkata and I love Kolkata as a city, was because I wanted to be in a place where I wasn't always identified as the child of Nobunita and Amartya. Not because I felt a pressure, but I felt like it was my time to create an identity that was independent, which is different from feeling performance anxiety. So it did have an impact on the decision I made. And ironically, at that time, my dad was teaching in Oxford. So even though my mother was very keen that I should apply to Oxford or Cambridge, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be in America, partly because I wanted to be in neutral territory where I was on my own without the loving shadow of my parents. Yes. But also because, I mean, there are various things. I also at that time felt very strongly that I didn't want to be, I didn't want to, this was my first grown up decision. And I didn't want to choose a country that we had been colonized by. You know, as I said, I'd grown up in a very political way. And so that was sort of a decision that I felt like I'm not going to choose a country that ruled us. And then as it turns out, my dad actually ended up moving to America from England, which was in fact amazing because my parents had separated when I was really very young. This gave us an opportunity to spend a lot of time together at the time when I was still very much forming myself. So it all actually worked out perfectly 
despite <laughs> plans that I had for myself. The, we're all, we've all ended up being writers. Indrani is a journalist. My brother Kabir is a musician. They're both incredibly talented, as is my older sister, Antara, who is a journalist as well. We ended up being creative writers, artists, creative thinkers, and all decided to make the choices that we made without feeling limited by that. I guess the weight of celebrity is the question that you're asking. What was the daily adda uh, around your dinner table like? We still have addas, which is really lovely. I mean, we have these addas every Saturday. We have a family Zoom. It's very sweet. And my my daughter calls it family news. She, she's just pointing out today, we haven't done family news in a while. because, <laughs> As I said, we're quite a political family. So we end up taking a lot about, for instance, last year, a lot of it was about what was going to happen in America. And of course, we're talking about what's happening with the COVID situation. A lot of the conversation is dominated by what's happening with our kids and, you know, our kids' schools. Our school is going to open. Are they going to close? And it's very sweet how it's just it's one of the family traditions that I think all of us really look forward to every week. So, yeah, so the does continue. That's lovely. Oh, my goodness. I think you've inspired me and those who are listening to have our very own Adas with our family. It's um, such a wonderful way to stay connected and, you know, share what's on your mind and your opinions. And the truth uh-huh. is, we would have thought of doing it if it hadn't been right. Out, right. We only thought about it because of that. But now I think we're going to continue doing it always. I absolutely loved indulging in your mother's anthology of poems that you translated, the book Acrobat, which I have here. In the foreword of the book, you explained that your mom had a primal need for poetry, in quotes. Uh, She said writing in Bangla was a political choice that she made. So tell us about why she wrote in Bangla and then you later translated it in English for the world. She often described poetry as a vital necessity, not just for her, but for all women. She felt that it was an instrument of freedom for women. She didn't just mean urban poets writing in the ivory tower, but she was talking about the work songs of women in villages working in the fields. She was talking about how women across India have rewritten the songs of Sita and Draupadi and made them their own and found ways of describing their own pain and their own challenges through those. When she went back to India, when my parents split up, and this was in the 70s, she decided to write only in Bengali because she felt that that was the way of preserving Bengali literature and culture. She went on to say that she has three discontents to translation, which I feel are absolutely valid. Uh, Quantity, quality, and availability. I know that you worked with her in translating her, her works. So she, of course, became amenable to it. But did she feel that the English or the Hindi translations would somehow dilute her words? Regional literatures were being let down because... They were not being translated. Mm-hmm. When they were translated, the translations were not of high quality. And right. when the translations were of high quality, they were not distributed well enough. So they were not reaching people. She was a language activist. Her last book, she was editing the proofs of her last collection of translations just a few weeks before she died. And the book came out literally two or three weeks after she died, actually, called Shara Prithibir Kovita, which means poems from the whole world. You know, she translated poetry from Telugu, from Malayalam, from Gujarati, from Oriya, from Hindi. She was a polyglot. She knew lots of languages. She loved translating herself. The reason why she didn't translate her own work is because she felt as a poet, she agonized over every syllable, every word in every poem. And once she was done, in Bengali, she was done. She didn't want to revisit the poem again. 
I mean, one bonding experience that you had was when you translated her poems and you were in your college dormitory and sipping on hot chocolate. So can you tell us about those moments, really kind of burning the midnight oil with your mom? When I started college and she came and stayed with me, it was a different level of intimacy. Before anyone else, I talked to her about my first sexual experiences. My friends did not have that experience. (laughs) They were not able to speak about. She was the most fun traveling partner. Loved going to see musicals and theater together. So whether in New York or London or Bombay, we did a lot of that. So when I think about it now, I realize how unique that was. I want you to share uh, a poem that really struck a chord with me um, in Acrobat. It's on page 119, and it's called Umbilical Cord. So if you would do us the honor of reading that for us. She wrote it in 1989, just a few weeks before my grandmother died. So she wrote it for my grandmother. Umbilical Cord for my mother. You are in so much pain. You're trying to cut the birth knot, but earth's umbilical cord keeps you tied in twists, tangled like our weak and fearful love. You're trying hard to be born into a different, fearless world, but our restless arms, unshakable like the sacred thread, coil around your neck, a blood-drenched umbilical cord. You will not have the power to leave the womb of this earth and escape freely into a newborn breeze. You will be bound here in pain and love. Beautiful. I want to kind of switch gears now and highlight your acting career because you are a prolific actor. I especially enjoyed your performances in Black and Run Russia. So if you could begin with Black, which was a really groundbreaking film inspired by Helen Keller's life story. Uh, what was it like working with Sanjay Lila Banzali? Rani Mukherjee and Amitabh Bachchan and the entire, you know, cast and crew behind that iconic film. It was amazing. You know, it was actually my first film in Bombay. I had done one film before when I was still in film school, which was with Gautam Ghosh. It was a film called Guria, the doll, which opened, was, was officially selected at Cannes. And that's how I suddenly started getting work in different continents and had got agents, et cetera. But I was still not the, the first film that I actually did in India, in Bombay, was this film. And it was amazing. It was such an inspiring story. I loved every bit of working with Sanjay. The thing about Sanjay Leela Bhansali is that he is a total perfectionist and mm-hmm. he's a completely meticulous. And I, even though I was a newbie, was also a perfectionist. And somehow we recognized, she, I mean, of course I recognized, the world recognized him, but I was nobody, right? I had not done any, any work before. I was delighted that I auditioned for the part and I got it. And he's also brilliant. He's so wise. He saw that I was even in all of my inexperience a, a perfectionist. We had a very strong professional connection. And, you know, he allowed me to improvise and add lines to the dialogue, which, for instance, I remember one, I I added a whole part, but there was a scene there. If you've seen the film, you remember where I'm, my character, Sarah, has a fight with her parents because she's always felt a little bit neglected by her parents who have always focused on Michelle, the older child who was deaf and blind and mute. And so in that altercation, in the moment, I said, how can I get your attention? Do I need to speak to you in sign language? And he absolutely loved it. That's just one example. But there were other examples like that. He was so generous to a complete novice, right? He was very open to the way I responded to the script instinctively and to my creative impulses. You know who else was really fun to work with on that set? who worked tirelessly and was very supportive and protective was Ranbir. I had no idea he had plans to be an actor, (laughs) but he was just the sweetest, most fun, and really, as I said, very protective AD and also very meticulous. 
needed to have. She he was also the stand-in for Mr. Bachchan. You know, he was the body double for Mr. Bachchan because he was so tall. And now for a quick break, brought to you by my brand sponsor, Homer. Hi, this is Kanika Chadagupta, founder and host of That Total Mom Sense. I'm Stephanie Dua, president and co-founder of Homer. And this is At Home with Homer. Homer is the essential early learning program for kids aged two to eight. We have the most comprehensive app available for early learning skills that you can find on iOS or Google Play. And you can also find our really fun explore kits that help kids with their math, their reading, and social emotional learning that you can find on our website, learnwithhomer.com. On this weekly segment, we're going to cover a range of topics from raising confident readers to developing emotional intelligence. These are the skills that will carry your child through school and life and resonate most when taught at home by you, their most important teacher. So grab a notepad, your phone, or your mental notebook to remember the tips shared during the segment. And now on to At Home with Homer. Homer! In our final episode of At Home with Homer, we're going to be talking about the 80-20 rule of parenting. And this is something I want to focus on because we've strived to incorporate this rule into all of our conversations. It's how we can simplify information for families with easy, quick, applicable tips and help parents feel supported instead of overwhelmed. And in the spirit of that, uh, Stephanie, I'd love to hear more of your experience and give us a general sense about what you think parents need to focus on and most importantly, what parents can confidently forget about. Thanks, Kanika. I love this question because this is truly my goal, not even just in my own family, but in helping parents. That the concept of 80-20 really is comes from business, but the idea is how do you get 80% of the value, the outcome for 20% of the effort? So it's really, you know, sometimes people call that hacks, but I really think of it more of as a mindset, which is, you know, how do we really think about where we need to spend our energy and time to get the most effort and what can we not do or outsource because we're one person holding many jobs. Moms have, you know, this kind of, you know, moms have never been more burned out than they are today. We're holding so many jobs, you know, and it's really crushing for parents. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to think about how we can simplify. So the couple of quick things that I think when I think about it for myself and for for families out there, one is don't forget to enlist your kids. Your kids can do more than you think. So getting their help, setting the table, even sweeping the floor after dinner, Doing little dishes. I used to get a, a tall stool. So Isla, when she was really little, could put little rubber gloves on and scrub the pots and pans. So just thinking about wherever you can, enlisting your kids for help, it's good for them. And they get agency and mastering in these skills. The second thing is look for areas where you can do double duty. So if you're trying to help them with some basic math skills and you're trying to make dinner, find a way that you can help them with math while making dinner. So anything Mm. you can do where you can get two for one is a great 80-20 parenting rule. Number three is if something is really complex and you're going to have to do a lot of research and really find out how to do something, think about, is there another solution for it? First, ask yourself, is it something I need to do? But second, If it is something you feel you need to do, how can you look outside for expertise for that? You know, that's in some ways the origin story of Homer. You know, we were thinking about learning to read is one of the hardest things for kids. And it really does take an expert to teach a kid to read. You know, when I had kids, I was trying to figure out how do you actually bring that best teaching in through technology? That was one example of taking something complex, you know, and finding a simpler solution for it. And then finally, I would say in terms of energy, when you're thinking about the 20% where you're really spending your energy, the things kids are going to remember are things where you're connecting with them. Even if it's in a small moment where you're sitting with them playing a game, you're having some fun snuggling together. So think about those moments, those 20% and where you're really spending your energy connecting with them as much as possible, because that's what's enduring. And that's what's going, they're going to remember. Yes, absolutely. And I feel like that quality over quantity concept just helps us because we are doing a million things and we can't be hands-on at every moment, but when we are and when we're truly present, it's nice to know that that leaves a lasting impact. 
Yeah, that's exactly right, Connick. And we're starting, we'd love to continue to have you and others. You're one of our experts in this new passion project called Growing Good, where we're really trying to create a, a community for parents to understand really this concept of 80-20 and how do they simplify so that the parent burnout is not so taxing as it is for many parents. So I would encourage everyone to go check out Growing Good. Um, we're doing that. You know, Kanika is so generous to be one of our experts that we're bringing on. And we're really just excited about building this community for parents. Absolutely. Thank you, Stephanie, for all of your work and dedication to this community through Homer, through Growing Good, and through your own thought leadership and storytelling, because your life experience, you know, has informed everything that you've done in your career, too. We're so thankful to have you in our corner helping us out. Thank you, Kanika. We hope you enjoyed this week's At Home with Homer segment. To download the app, visit learnwithhomer.com backslash momsense, M-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, to receive your very own 60-day free trial. Your kids are going to love playing the games, watching the visual stories, and more. Now, back to the interview. Uh, Tell us about your first book. My first book as a writer for kids was this book called Mambi and the Forest Fire. And that actually happened in the story kind of developed in this workshop that I was doing with kids who had been rescued from trafficking and from the street. So this happened in a children's home called Sneha, which is in a place called Norindapur, just outside of Kolkata. I was living in India at the time. So I, I did these workshops, which were theater arts performance and creative workshops with kids that help them express their feelings and ease the process of reintegration and rehabilitation and help them bond. And it was really fun. And what usually happened every time I did it was that the kids were bursting. They had so much to say, so much to share. So the challenge was to rein in that energy and make sure that all sort of chaos didn't erupt. But in this case, this particular group had come together very recently and they were very, very shy. So none of the kids were willing to jump into the workshop and they were all feeling that the others were a lot more gifted or talented and had things to say and that they didn't. So then I created the character of this very shy girl monkey called Mambi who wanted to be like her older, cooler jungle friends and wanted to fly like her friend, Coco the Crow, and swim like her friend, Tonga the Turtle. But there's a fire and Mambi, who can jump higher than anyone else, ends up saving all her friends and realizes that she has a gift, that she has her own unique identity. I created the character of Mambi, but actually the rest of the story that I just told you, they were kind of created by the kids. They created the other characters. They kind of put the forest on fire. They made sure that Mambi was the one who was the hero of the hour. And that's how that story happened. And it became a best-selling book. It's been really loved by kids. I'm in the process of writing the sequel to it. Kids take away different things from it. I often use it as a way of talking about equality with kids. So whether you fly or jump or swim, whether you're a girl or a boy, whether you're Hindu or Muslim or Christian or Sikh or Jain or Parsi or Jewish, you deserve the same respect and love. And so I've used it as a kind of way of making kids aware of of equality. But a lot of kids in India have also responded to it as a story about your unique identity, right? So not feeling pressured to excel in everything. Such an important thing, I think, for parents to understand as well, just being able to encourage them to do what they love to do. There are very few books in India which speak to kids with special needs. So because Mm. it's about the different abilities of Mambi. So in a way, it's about differently abled characters. So it has become a book that's used a lot with kids with special needs. That's wonderful. So I'd love for you to now share about your motherhood journey, I guess, starting with how you and your husband, John, met. John and I met very briefly at Jaipur Lit Fest, only for five minutes. And then 
months later, we became friends in New York, where both of us had homes, although we also had a home in India and he had a home in England. That's how we became friends. That's wonderful. And when did the two of you decide that the time was right to start a family? Actually, right from the start, because when we fell in love, I told him that I had already, I was waiting for my baby girl because I had applied as a single mom to adopt a child. That adopting a girl child had been a huge priority for me for, for many years. I had purposely decided to step back from acting especially because I was always drawn to really eccentric international films. I knew that that life was not compatible with the life of being a mom, especially a single mom, right? So I had made that application. I very consciously decided to take a break from acting. And I had been told that I was sort of on the wait list for my child. So John knew from the beginning that that was my dream and it became his dream too. Have you spoken about, you know, adoption to Megla and how do you navigate those conversations? We, um, I don't want her to forget that, which is easy for kids to forget. I believe, and you know, I think every parent feels differently about it. And I think we need to respect that. I think it's really important to find your own language for it, your own philosophy of what you feel is right for your family. We talk about the fact that she's a heart baby, not a tummy, that that she also has a tummy mummy who brought her into the world with a lot of love. I don't want there to be any confusion in her mind about the fact that I didn't bring her into the world, but someone else did with a lot of care. And that's a positive thing. It shouldn't be something that should be hidden from her is the way I feel. Yeah. And we used to go back to India a lot. I mean, in the life, this is the longest time ever in my life, in my entire life that I've been away from India, which is now a year and a half. So we always take her back to the home in Howrah where we first met. And, you know, we created a beautiful playground for them, which she loves going to and is very Aww. proud of. You know, it's a happy part of her life and we want it to remain that way. Yes, it's it's part of her story. It makes her who she is, which is so, so beautiful. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a birth story for her. Right? If she had been my biological kid, I would have had details about how she came out into the world and what her first scream was like and what <laughs> happened and all of that and who was present and just the way that I'm sure you do with your kids but I don't have that um, mm-hmm. but I do have her her history which is a lovely one and our, the history of our coming together and becoming a family which is very special so that's what we celebrate. When she's older if she has you know an inkling to discover her past would you support her? Oh, absolutely. I would be on the journey with her. Anytime she wants to explore that, I would completely support her in that. How do you um, kind of advise parents who are interested in adoption, if there are those who are listening, um, especially women who may be in their 40s, who feel that ship has sailed for me? What advice, if you were to speak directly to them, do you have about you know, having this option, um, an opportunity and privilege to adopt. It's normal to have fears about it. It's this, how is it all going to work? Are we going to fit well as a family? The truth is, anytime you put yourself in charge of a child, whether biologically or through adoption or through surrogacy, you are taking a chance. It is a life. It's not you. It's a life Mm -hmm. that you love, perhaps more than your own life. Yet it is a distinct life and therefore that life will have its journey. And all you can do is to be as supportive as you can. You know, it's not like there aren't challenges with kids who are biological, right? There can always be challenges and there may never be any challenges. It's a leap of faith. And it's what I mean is that it's a leap of faith even when you decide to have a child biologically. For instance, for me, it was very important that the child be a girl and the child be from India. In India, sometimes it's difficult if you're an older parent to be able to adopt because there are cage age cutoffs. There is a special rule that gives single women who are older 
a priority tier. It's complicated. Wherever you do the adoption from, it's always going to be complicated. So it's really important to be prepared for a long journey and to just be excited about it and be committed to it. And if you decide that you want to adopt and that is what you see as your future, then you can make it happen. I'm sure of that, mm. even though it's not necessarily going to be an easy journey, but it's it's the most transformative experience. It's not just full of joy and wonder, but it really changes you as a person in a good way. And during your mother's last few weeks on earth, you found yourself saying the very same thing, Ekonina. So if you could tell us about that. I can read to you a little bit from the letter. Although there were unending demands on your time, a few years ago, you had somehow managed to find several days for us to translate together my bedtime book for children, not yet. The book is a playful dialogue in rhyme between a mother and a child. A naughty little girl finds countless excuses not to go to bed, while her ever-patient mother is determined to put her to sleep. The literal Bengali translation of not yet is Akonina, but you had laughed your own little girl laugh and declared, no, no, the girl must be much more emphatic. She will say, Ekunina, Ekunina. Well, this obstinate daughter of yours kept saying to her mother in the last few weeks, Ekunina, Ekunina. Could you hear me, Ma? Not too long ago, I pulled a big blue book from our Kolkata shelf, 365 Bedtime Stories. When I opened it, out fell a red gold rush of leaves, oaks, maples, and ferns collected in London when I was a toddler. We had gathered them together in the woods at the bottom of the hill where we lived. One night, as you were reading to me about Tinkerbell, I interrupted you with a technical question. What are fairy wings made of? Butterfly wings? Bird feathers? Or huge petals? There are all kinds of fairies, you see, you replied, just as there are all kinds of people. Do all fairies look like you? I persisted. I don't think so, you smiled. Fairies are very, very beautiful. But Ma, I protested, you're the most beautiful person in the world. You laughed, much <laughs> more closely than Tinkerbell would, as you drew heavy curtains over tall windows. Every little girl believes that about their mother, Tumpush. Well, Ma, I've grown up a bit. My world has grown up a lot. I left home as a child and made beautiful friends who became my family. In my work, I've met many beautiful faces walked with beautiful figures. I've fallen in love with beautiful minds. You grew up too, more books published, many awards won. A few more clashes with your stubbornly loving daughters. Around your eyes, a few more lines, celebrating years of full-throated life. A few more world tours, many with me, when you swept me away with your limitless appetite for discovery, your infectious sense of wonder. Remember that list we made some years ago of unvisited countries that you absolutely had to explore? Wheelchair in tow. We made it to most entries on that list. China, Egypt, South Africa, but not Myanmar. Each time we traveled, you transformed our adventures into provocative essays or best-selling books. And on every trip, we shared even more pleasures together than our plentiful arguments. Yes, we did have fights. I cried when you didn't understand. I begged you not to nag. I yelled at you when I was upset with someone else. I watched in panic as tears welled up in your ever adolescent eyes. But I am as sure today as I was that night in London that even if you had not been my mother, even if that most precious accident of birth had by rights been the beginning of someone else's story, even if I'd met you in any of your other roles as a poet, professor, painter, friend, or a stranger on a plane, you would still be the most beautiful person I could ever have met. At the end of Not Yet, the daughter asks, Ma, did you turn out the light? And the mother replies, yes, my dear. Now, good night. That's really, really sweet. I started writing this letter when on her 75th birthday, mm -hmm. and I kept adding to it. It was this letter that grew. So she had read most of it and she had said that uh, because we signed Acrobat just a couple of weeks before she died and she had said if she weren't writing the introduction to the book, then she wanted me to introduce her in the book through this letter. 
So tell us about a mom sense moment that you've experienced where you kind of trusted your intuition as Megla's mother. My mother had a very lovely way of describing it because it actually took almost a year. And I mean, actually, the whole process I, I took over over 10 years, but just from just the, the process with Megla took that long. And she said, well, you know, that's how long it takes to uh, have a pregnancy and give birth to a child. So you went <laughs> through that process. Right. And that's just, you know, that's, that's just the way it was supposed to be. And I do believe that it was meant to be that way because if I had actually managed to adopt when I first applied in, you know, 2010, it wouldn't have been Megla, right? Right, so, right. I do feel it was destiny for everything to happen exactly the way it happened and for her to come home to us when she did. Let's not forget our quote of the day. Is there a quote that you live by? My daughter, since we're in this space, she said something really beautiful yesterday, which we were we were seeing this show, Anything Goes, and my mother used to love going to musicals. We, <laughs> I love taking her to musicals and so when the uh, overture was happening after the lights were dim I was just missing her and um I wasn't crying but my I was a bit teary and Megla has incredible instinct so she in the dark knew that I was uh teary and she turned to me and she said I know you're thinking about Dima you must not be sad about the mama because uh, mama because Dima is your imaginary friend and she follows you everywhere because that's what imaginary friends do they follow you everywhere and I thought that's just so wise and it's true she is my imaginary friend mm -hmm. and she is going to follow me everywhere and I think that's the quote that I want to live by for the rest of my life that my mother is my imaginary friend who will follow me everywhere that's beautiful oh my goodness it's now time for Mom Hall, when we share products we love. Mom Hall is a segment where, you know, you can share any gadget or product or something that you've come across that's kind of made your life easier lately that you want to share with the listeners. Well, it's the same thing that has always worked with her, which is having music and it doesn't have to be a particular company or whatever, but just even though she's not an infant anymore. Yeah. To this day, we always have, uh, she, now it's a musical bear. She had a musical rabbit earlier. The musical rabbit, you know, had a string that you pull and then it's like a music box, right? Mm -hmm. and musical bear is a little bit more advanced in that you can time up it to shut itself off after half an hour or 15 minutes or however long. And we, that is an absolute must without, and of course I still need to be with her until she falls asleep, but it's a lot easier with the, with a little bit of musical support. Yeah, that's sweet. And where can my listeners find you? Well, you can find me on, um, Instagram and Twitter and uh, FB on Nandana Dev Sen. Okay, and your your literary works. So all my books are available on Amazon, and Acrobat is available also in the Archipelago book site. If you go to archipelago.org, you can order Acrobat there. Acrobat you can also find in the Penguin Random House sites um, across the world. Wonderful! It is such a wonderful read. I keep it at my bedside. I thoroughly enjoyed, you know, reading the poetry and kind of, uh, it's an, a visceral experience how evocative your writing and your mother's writing is. Thank you so much. I've had a lot of fun talking with you about these poems. Thank you, Nandana. I really appreciate your love and your light. And I know we have bonded about our mother, as you so very graciously ask about my mom. And I think that's a real testament to you and your pure soul. So I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much. I am so glad that we've been able to 
have not just today's conversation, but many conversations about our experiences as daughters. I think that's the most defining experience in my life is being in the experience of being a daughter and being a mom. And I'm so glad that we are connected through the close bond that we feel with our moms. I hope you enjoyed hearing Nandana's story and her special bond with her mother and daughter. Thank you, Nandana, for being such a beautiful soul and a sounding board and friend to me. I am eternally grateful. Nandana has three upcoming events happening soon that are both in person and virtual. So do take out your calendars to make a note. This Monday, September 27th at 7 p.m., you can hear Nandana speak and read her poetry at the Brooklyn Book Festival, which is New York City's largest free literary festival. It happens over eight days and has the credo, hip, smart, and diverse. Nandana's event, called Private and Public Lives in Poetry, is planned in person as of now and will be hosted by McNally Jackson Books at South Street Seaport, 4 Fulton Street, New York, New York. For updates, please visit brooklynbookfestival.org and mcnallyjackson.com. Then, on September 30th, Nandana has the UK book launch of Acrobat. She will be in conversation with the celebrated poet Banu Kapil, who in 2021 was awarded the prestigious T.S. Eliot Poetry Prize for her book, How to Wash a Heart. This is a virtual event hosted by the Nehru Center in London on September 30th at 5 p.m. GMT, 1 p.m. EST, and 9.30 p.m. IST. You can watch it live on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the YouTube channel for the Nehru Center, London, at Nehru Center, spelt the British way. So N-E-H-R-U-C-E-N-T-R-E. You can find more details on the Nehru Center website, as well as Nandana's website, nandanadevsen.com. On October 9th, come see Nandana in person at the legendary Word Up bookstore in New York City for an interactive reading and book signing of Acrobat. This is being held on Saturday, October 9th from 4 to 5 p.m. And it is at 2113 Amsterdam Avenue, New York, New York. Learn more at wordupbooks.com. All the info I mentioned about Nandana's upcoming events are also featured on my website, that's totalmomsense.com, under Nandana's episode page and show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and share it with your friends on the Good Pods app. Write to me at thatstotalmomsense at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram at Kanika Chadda Gupta for updates on my podcast guests and upcoming series. Thank you so much for being part of my active audience. And remember, always trust your mom sense. Stay strong, super mamas. See you next time. That's total mom sense.